But let me go ahead and open in prayer. Father, I thank you for the chance that we have to spend this time this evening. I thank you for your word, Father, for the practicality of, of, uh, of, of, of your word and how it speaks to us. I thank you for the privilege that we have to, to become uh, workmen that learn how to rightly handle the word of truth. Uh, thank you for the privilege that we have. Father, I pray for your blessing, not only as we, as we think about, again, principles and ideas that help guide our study, but Father, even as we look at, again, sample passages and we, we spend time diving into your word even this evening, I pray for your blessing in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I do know we have, if you haven't gotten the notes, we have them in the back. Um, you know, for, it's kind of, again, weeks one and two and then weeks three and, three and four. We do have the notes for the first two weeks and um, I'm not sure where we put them. So I'll try to find them right afterwards or, um, or we'll have, definitely have them for next week, if not before then. And, um, and, and again, I, I know people have asked, and we do have, we are audio recording everything so that it is available on, online as well. And the notes and everything is available online as well. So the first couple weeks, we have been kind of really the, kind of the, um, again, just to give an over, overview, the first two weeks, uh, these two weeks are gonna really be, the, you know, this week and next week are, are kind of more devotional guidelines. You know, so that as we approach the Bible and we read it, not, not just academically trying to understand it, but as we read it devotionally, what are some principles and guidelines that should help us read it that way? And it, so there's a lot of overlap. And then the last four weeks, uh, uh, different literary styles. And what that's going to really focus in on is, is looking at how different parts of the Bible have some, some different rules. And so when you look at... Um, historical narrative, like when the Gospels, which, you know, the story of Jesus, well, that's a, that has a very distinctive style. Um, and so it has some rules that are Proverbs, which is, is wisdom, that has some rules. Or even at the end, we'll get into, um, you know, the prophecy and apocalyptic. Um, you know, so those have some very distinctive styles. And so what we're going to look at is what are some of those different types? And then what are some of the distinctive rules for each, each style? And, uh, and again, so I, I think it's all, it's, there's so much there with all of them. And so it, there will be a little bit of overlap at times because some of the principles are, do overlap. Uh, what I would like to do though this, this morning is to start off, or this morning, this evening, um, is to kind of, before we get into it, almost to start with a kind of an overarching principle when we come to devotional rule. And this was something that even in studying it, um, you know, I kind of, kind of, my thinking has developed on this just recently. You know, just really wanting, to, as I thought about it, I said, I really needed to add this. And, and it's kind of this foundational truth to start off with. And that is, 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 you know, when we say devotionally, it's the Bible is God's word. We say that, we talk about that. Theologically, that's important. But here's a principle that when we read it devotionally, that, but it's God's word and it's given so that, we can ha so that we can know him and have a relationship with God. And... Um, and, and, and that's a really important idea. Because a lot of times when we, when we look at the Bible, and we, especially when we come out of the first part, you know, we can talk about the idea of you know, how do we understand it. And it can almost seem a little bit more academic. Okay, here's we're trying to know God, we know theology. And I, I can tell you in my own experience, I've, I've been around a lot of believers where we get into Bible studies and, we get, and it's, very, it's very academic. And so we're studying this to know the right theology. We're studying this to, you know, kind of, um, you know, you know, understand the wording here. There, it's, it's, you know, it's very, very academic. 
And what we've got to realize is, yes, it's God's word, and, and it not only means that it's inerrant, but it's written for the purpose of knowing God and having a relationship with him. That everything in the Bible, it's about a relationship with Jesus Christ, uh, or with God through Jesus Christ. And it is, that's, that's really important. And if we understand that, it will impact the way that we read and study the Bible. And it drives us to this more devotional perspective. Um, and, and you know, part of that is, is there's, a, there's an essential connection between the Bible and the personal relationship with God. Um, and, and let me think, or kind of talk about it this way. When you think about a relationship with someone, the only way you have a relationship with someone is interaction with that person. And it's not just knowledge about a person. The thing is, is that you could read biographies about a person and, and get a lot of information about a person and not know them. And so when you look and make it a little bit more academic, and then we're kind of, we're almost making it, you know, a biography about God, or a theological treatise about God. And so we're studying all these things, and, and, and it's all good, and it's all true, but we're studying about God, and what we've got to realize is that, again, the gospel is a, not learning about God so that we have right theology, it's about having a relationship with God. And so even in that, as much as the study, you know, an academic study of the Bible is great, and, and study of theology is great, all those things are wonderful, um, but the fact of the matter is, is they're incomplete because the purpose of the whole gospel message is not an academic knowledge. And in that relationship with him, it's not just knowledge about, but it's literally having interaction with. So again, if you, know, you think about any interaction, any relationship that you have, it's the type of thing that you spend time together. You know, and and in, that con in that time, what is it? It's conversation. So that I hear you know, that it, when I think about in marriage, what do I want to do? Well, I spend time with, I hear uh, the thoughts of my wife, and we talk, and as I hear her thoughts, as I hear her heart, I get to know her and I connect to her. That's how the relationship is founded. Now, what we've got to realize is that that's, that's the Bible. That's the Bible is, again, it's God's, not only God speaking his truth, his word, but it's speaking his truth and his word in a, for a relational purpose. Um, and beyond that, you know, what, what it means is that you cannot know God apart from studying the Bible. Now, I will tell you, um, I, you know, I talk to people all the time, and, you know, they'll even talk about, it seems like as people have gotten further and further away from, um, you know, from, established religion from Christianity and people still are spiritual. Um, so we'll talk to people and they're like, well, I don't go to church. You know, I, I, I go and interact with God in the forest and I take a walk and, um, you know, I have a, a family member who's, you know, my, my, wife, my wife's sister that says this all the time. And, uh, but I hear it not uncommonly. But what's amazing, it's not usually people just saying, I'm, I don't go to church, but I don't read the Bible. And, and basically their experience of God is this, this experience in nature, and usually it's nature or something else. It's kind of like, this is, this is where I meet God. I do music or something like that. And what you've got to realize that we can argue about the importance of the church. I think the Bible makes it pretty clear. 
But beyond that, you just cannot know God apart from the Bible. And has God revealed himself in nature? Yes, but it's a partial revelation. And what you have in the Bible is you have God speaking, you know, this more complete revelation. And so if we, you know, if we come, again, what we have in nature, it's kind of like saying, okay, I've read a, this, the book about, but I, I, don't, I don't know the heart, I don't know the thoughts, I don't know the passion of the person. And so it, again, the study of the Bible, but let's even go beyond that. What that means is that when we talk about this devotionally, if all I'm doing is that I'm getting the Bible on a Sunday morning message, how well I can get to know God is incredibly limited. Because the fact of the matter is, is that if this is, it's all about a relationship with God and God has communicated his word so that we can know him. And I can't know him apart from the Bible because that's how I get to know him. That's how I hear him. That's how I, that's how I you know, and there's, there's prayer and there's other things, but, it, but what has been revealed about God See, if I'm not doing this on my own, then my ability to know God is very, very limited if all I'm getting is a little bit of Bible or once a week and a message or your sermon or things like that. And so that's why it's so important when we talk about the importance of Bible reading. Uh, I think you, many of you have heard this. I, I didn't I talk about this. You know, they've done a number of studies. It, it, like four or five years ago, several groups did some studies and they were talking about uh, Christian growth, and they were looking at, you know, dynamics of, of uh, you know, people that would claim to be Christians, but that their life wouldn't be that different. And so they really dug, did a kind of an in-depth study of, okay, what makes the difference? And again, you would expect that, you know, we'd, you know if, if I would have thought of, the first thing I would have thought of, well, is are they even an evangelical church or a liberal church? You know, that's what I would have thought of as the first thing. And that was a factor. Uh, church attendance was a factor, but by far the the most significant factor was Bible reading. If people read the Bible four times a week or more, their lives were radically different than the people who read. Again, that's the same idea. If, if we really believe these things are true, then that shouldn't be a surprise, which is why a class like this is so important, uh, because it's trying to say, okay, how do I, if that's the most important thing I could do in my spiritual growth, how do I learn to do it better? Now, when we do that, we recognize that therefore it's God's word that's speaking to us for the purpose of relationship. But then one of the rules of that is that when we interact with the Bible, we've got to recognize that we need to let it be the judge of you, not you to be the judge of it. And this is something that, again, I see a lot of, 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 of momentum toward this kind of well, I agree with that. Well, this one passage, I don't really, I have trouble with that. Or this one, and they will kind of interact with and kind of tell me, okay, here's all these things. I love the Bible, I love this. But, you know, but here's something that, you know, um, you know, I, I, I'm gonna even get into, I'll, I'll step, on, step out here. Even like something on pastors. Um, um, that's a very, very sensitive subject. I know it is. You know, when you look at that, you have the arguments on why is it that more and more churches have kind of embraced the role of women pastors. If you have for 1900 plus years of the church, everyone interpreted the Bible as saying the role of pastor is, 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 is restricted for, for men. That was, everybody agreed for that for 1900 plus years. And suddenly in 1950s, that started to change and people started to say, well, maybe it doesn't really say that. And, and it was cultural and, and, and that was written in the cultural time. And so we need to change that. Now we have to say, 
are we looking at the Bible and saying, okay, the Bible's going to judge us? Or do we come and say, well, because of cultural uh, evolution, we now have a greater sensitivity to certain things and we will now judge the Bible and we will determine what is cultural and what should be changed and, um, and what is timeless. And what we've got to realize is that there's, a, there's an incredible temptation of this. But when we fall into that temptation, in a sense what we're doing is that we're saying that we're putting ourselves above the Bible. We're putting ourselves, we're saying, okay, it ultimately there's, a, there's a, um, a standard of truth above the Bible that we can look at and we can say, I can judge and be able to tell what's, you know, what's cultural, what's not. See, we think that we're this objective um, you know, judge in a sense saying, I'm standing outside of time and space and I'm able to judge what's, you know, what's objective, what's not with this objective standard. And what we miss is the fact of the matter is all of us, all of us are bound by the culture in which we live. None of us are objective. You know, none of us can really stand outside of culture. To do is we start to, in a sense, put ourselves above the Bible. You know, we say, okay, I'm the one that, um, I can judge it. I can, I can judge whether I think this is relevant or not, I th whether it's cultural or not, whether it's timeless or not. And, and it's really, really dangerous to do that. Um, it's really making ourselves you know, the ultimate authority over the Bible. Um, and and so, I, so I, there's a lot of different things over time that will change with that. But I think that if you look at it and you say, if it's God's word, if it speaks to us, then we've got to recognize that it's God speaking to us and we've got to let it speak to us and judge us, challenge us, confront us. Um, not us look at and determine what is, you know, and we won't, you know, generally it doesn't start with what's inerrant and, you know, it's what's, what's, we would start by saying, okay, what is, um, what is culturally bound? What is, you know, what is something that, you know, that we need to interpret it this way because the culture misinterpreted it. That's really, really dangerous. Beyond that, what you want to do is, is to come back and say, again, if this is God's word, it's spoken for purposes of relationship with him. The next thing is to say, we should be committed to searching his word, to search the scriptures. And there's so many passages that talk about this, but you know, one that is really well known is in Acts 17. Um, it talks about Paul and Silas and their uh, trip, or mission trip to Berea. And, uh, and it says, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were true. Um, I know even, you know, in, we were talking in John a couple weeks ago, and John, you know, Jesus talked about you search the scriptures. And, um, and I think it's really important to, to look at this and to say that God calls us to do it. I think there's, there's, a, there's an assumption there when we talk about the importance of searching the scriptures. Number one, it's incredibly valuable that, you know, that you search for things that have tremendous value. Um, and you, know, and, and you all know of you know, times that you forget something and you're like, oh, we forgot that, oh, that, that, that's no problem. And if something is a value forever looking at because it has, it has value. Um, but beyond that, it also means, it, it suggests that there are things that are maybe easy to miss. You know, that when you look in the Bible, it's not, although it's, the, you know, we talk about the idea of the perspicuity of scripture, it's understandability. Um, the fact is, is that it's, there are things that are easy to miss. And, it, and it's, not, it's not like out there that you read it the first time and you say, I've got everything. 
No, the fact of the matter is, is it, is it, it's this incredible treasure trove of truth. Uh, I always remember we had a long time ago with this guy that uh, we were, that Sandy and I were ministering to this one couple, and, but he had been dealing with some addiction issues and got him involved in a ministry like Haven of Rest. That would have been very similar to that. And I remember he had, uh, had gotten to the point where he could start coming to another, you know, another church. And so we brought him back with us on a Sunday to our church. And uh, I wasn't preaching that Sunday, and so I'm sitting next to him, and, and the, you know, the guy that was preaching gets up, and he starts talking about how he, you know, he's preaching out of Genesis, and, the light, and he sits back and he says, oh, I've already read this one. You know, it's kind of like, I've already read this passage. I don't have anything to learn. <laughs> you know? And I'm like, no, you, you, know, you, know, you don't have no clue. You know, the fact is, is that we search the scripture and, and you never get to the point where you look at it and you say, oh, I got it all. Um, I will tell you, and again, some of this is gonna come back out later. Um, you know, it's, it's even in the time of this, I mean, one of the things that I, it's really helped me understand it in my own preparation. I usually will spend, you know, two or three hours on Monday uh, kind of really kind of spending a lot of time on the passage that we're looking at. And I'll kind of, um, you know, read it numerous times and kind of highlight what I see, what I don't see. A uh, little time on Tuesday and then really dive into it heavy on Wednesday. And what I find is that when I come back to it Wednesday, there's all kinds of things I didn't see on Monday. And if I didn't spend time on Monday, I wouldn't have seen it on Wednesday. And, but there's things that part of the searching of the scripture takes time. And, and even in that case, it's, you know, I think there are times of the meditation on it that there's, there's value of not only reach, studying it, but at times studying something and then walking away and coming back to it and, and kind of letting God, you know, kind of almost soften our heart to see things that we hadn't seen before. And, and I, I find it amazing because I'll, I'll have a lot of ideas written out on Monday, um, you know, as far as kind of initial thought of where I see this message going and the, you know, the, the text going and, and a lot of stuff that I write Monday never gets it into Sunday, you know. By the time I get halfway, it's like, no, my whole understanding of the passage just totally changed. Um, but that's searching. It's taking time. But it's not only searching, it's also letting the Scripture search you. You know, I, many of you are familiar with the James passage in James 1 where it talks about do, be doers of the word, not hearers only, so deceiving yourselves. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man that looks intently at his face in a mirror, but he looks at himself and goes away and, and at once forgets what he's like. But the one who looks into the perfect law of the, of the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer that acts, he'll be blessed in his doing. And the idea there is that when you look at that, um, there's a searching of you, where you let it be a mirror and you let it expose. And and part of that is, just, you know, is, is recognizing that we need to be exposed. I, I think of um, some spirits, even in some, in some churches, and I've been at places where you know, people come up and they'll, if they say it's a good message, basically what they're saying is, that was a great message, you said everything I agree with. Uh, you, know, you affirm my theology, you affirm my beliefs, you affirmed, and I've had people that have, yeah, you know, it's a great message, people need to hear that, kind of like you affirmed it, you said my message. And, and you'll be at other places where people will say, boy, that's a good message, I hated it. You know, it's kind of like you, you stepped on my toes. I didn't like anything you said, but you know, that, and, and that's what we, that's our perspective that we all need. 
the fact of the matter is none of us are there. None of us have arrived. And, you know, and, and, and in fact, you know, you look at it and you say one of the things that is so, that was so helpful for me to understand is when you look at, at Paul, Paul at the end of his ministry talks about, you know, I, I, not I was the chief of sinners. That's what I used to think it said. It's not that he said I was the chief. He said I am the chief of sinners. And why is at the end of his ministry he's more aware of his sin than he was at the beginning? You know, did he not make any spiritual progress? And, and I think the answer is this. I think he made tremendous spiritual progress. But the idea is the closer I get to God, if God is total glory, the closer I get to God, the more that I'm exposed. The closer you get to God, the more aware of your sin you are. And so the fact is, is that, you know, I, I have learned the lesson. I am so thankful for God's patience with me. I'm thankful that God hasn't exposed me fully in my sinfulness because it would destroy me. And he is so patient with me that he slowly reveals things just at the degree that I can handle. And when I surrender certain things and he goes to the next thing, but the closer I get, the more he reveals that. And part of understanding maturity is that's when you see Paul, is that Paul was, I am the chief of sinners. The person that's mature is, is more and more aware of their sinfulness. And, and not only more aware of it, but, but more almost, um, you know, it's not that we're excited about going there, but I know I need to go there. I need, I need to go, I need to be exposed. Um, I, I want to come before Christ. I want to let the word search me out. Um, but what we've got to realize that is that if we don't let it search over us, um, if, if all I do is I go to the Bible study and I study the Bible and I study theology and I'm, you know, or, you know, we joke about, you know, I have the sermons that are over my head and hits the person behind me and it's like, hey, they need to hear that message and you know, I need to get the CD for them. Um, if we do not let the Bible search over us, um, then what happens is we're not really giving it authority in our life. As much as we may say that we are, the thing is, is we really don't, we really don't believe it. We may give it formal authority, but not functional authority. And again, I, you know, I, pastorally, I, I, I mean, I, I want to surrender that in my own life, but pastorally, there are times you deal with people who say all the right words and and there's an area for their life that they're clearly out of line with God's word. And, and you know, and they're trying to explain to me why, you know, why what they're doing is okay. And, um, but the fact of the matter is that if you don't surrender, you know, you're really not making God's word the authority over your life. And, um, and so the fact is, are we surrendering? But not only that, it's not only the big things, it's the little things. Um, you know, so when, when you have, look at the, you know, the lilies of the field and they, they don't worry and they don't toil and spin and neither should you. And he calls us to not be anxious. I mean, I look at that and that's not a big area of sin. And, but yet is it speaking into me? Am I letting it expose my anxiety? Am I letting it step on my toes? Um, and, and I might justify it and say, well, that's not a big area of sin. And, but no, it's, it's speaking truth that I need to be confronted on. Um, you know, when we, when we look at something and we talk about, um, you know, even, you know, Romans 8, you know, the, the sufferings uh, that we go, you know, are going through are not worthy to compare the glory to be revealed within us. Now, do I really believe that? 
You know, when I go through difficulty, do I really believe that? Am I, is my heart really enamored with the glory to be revealed in us? And, and I tell you, this, like, this is a, a passage as, as Americans, we re, I think we really struggle with this. Um, and when you look at, you know, we, I mean, we know this is in the Bible, we probably know it best in 1 Corinthians um, in 13. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. We do a great job talking about faith. We do a great job talking about love. We don't talk a lot about hope. Now, if you take that passage, and again, it's in numerous places that, that uh, are in numerous places. But the idea of hope is, is of comparable importance than faith and love. And you say, well, it's hope. Well, hope is, is truly being driven by the hope of eternity. That what I long for, what I live for, is I'm investing my, my treasures in heaven because that's my hope, that's my, that's my ultimate reality. In America, I mean, we have so many blessings that it's easy for us to put our hope in everything else. Um, it's interesting is that I've interacted even, I've had chi- time to interact with Christians overseas in, in uh, mission settings, you know, that they are far more heavenly minded than, you know, than most of us Americans. And, uh, you know, and it's real easy to, you know, say, well, that's because, you know, for you have all kinds of different reasons. But then I realized that maybe the dynamics of our American life and the blessings that we have and the health that we have and retirement, all these, you know, security, you know, maybe are, these are all things that keep me away from really having that hope that I'm, and maybe I'm just thinking about that right at death, but it's really not giving me uh, a whole lot of comfort and direction in life. So I look at that and I say, if this is really true, am I living it out? See, and that's just an example. But what we've got to realize is that every time we go, because the Bible is God's word speaking for relational purposes, every time we interact with God's word, it's speaking new information. So God is speaking something into us. And it's not only trying, he's trying to tell us about himself, tell us about, ourself, about, about himself, about ourself, about our world, and he's speaking new information. And every time this new information comes, it should challenge us in some way. So that we know him better, we know ourselves better, that we are drawn to him. Does that make sense? Any, any comments or questions on that before we go to the next? Okay. Um, next section then. This is like, now as we get ready for, for devotional time for that time. I'm gonna encourage you a couple ideas just in preparation. Um, And this is probably the most important on on this. Number one, pray for God's leading, asking the Holy Spirit to enlighten your mind. To recognize that, again, this is God's word speaking for relational purposes. And so it's God speaking to us, but the Bible numerous times, uh, Ephesians 1, I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers, that the Lord of, or God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Um, in Ephesians 6, take the uh, helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times of the spirit with all prayers and supplications to keep alert uh, with all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2. Um, 
verse 12, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but by the spirit interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Then they follow to him, he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That's 1 Corinthians chapter two. And so what you have is numerous times in the Bible, this idea that's being taught that the Holy Spirit gives wisdom, the Holy Spirit enlightens our mind. That here what I have, you know, the word of God, these are spiritual words, spiritual truths that are beyond my natural ability to understand. And yes, there are certain things that I can do, certain rules, certain principles, certain concepts. The fact of the matter is, if, if I see things in the Bible that really stand out, that are living and active, it's not because I'm not that smart. It's, it's because I've relied upon the Holy Spirit. I've recognized my need. It goes back to even what we said. God makes us aware of our need, and, and if we see that need in our weakness, we find his strength. Um, that's, a, that's a huge, huge part of it. So, but that should be true for us anytime we come into devotional. It's not like, okay, well, let me bring my wisdom and my knowledge to this. It's, no, let me, you know, I'm, God, here's, you know, here's the five loaves and two fish that I've, I bring. Here's my effort, here's my time, but I cannot see. You know, bring your spirit in me and, and, and let him expose me to things that, you know, that are, are beyond my natural capacity to understand. And, and, and it's so important to start there. Um, and if we don't start there, you know, it's again, we're gonna be forever limited. You're, you know, you might figure some things out, but it's again, if it's really God's word speaking his truth to us for relational purposes, the fact of the matter is it's the Holy Spirit that makes this written word living and active and that makes it not that God spoke, but it's God speaking. And so that he speaks it to us and to our life and, he's, and that's what gives it the power to search. Um, and so that's, that's the most important thing to, you know, devotionally when you start, you always start there. Um, we start with that humility. Also then, remember the rules 3D and rule five from, from interpreting the Bible that we talked about before. And again, these are really vital. Uh, the rule three, when we talked about it before, uh, was the Bible's by its very nature understandable and practical. And point D of that rule is that the main question to, uh, to answer with every passage is, so what? You know, so it's always practical. And when we come to it and we study it, it's, it's always, okay, it's, it's, again, what this is showing is it goes back to these ideas that it's, a, it's God's word spoken for relational purposes. And so I'm not just saying, okay, what do I know about God? What is, you know, what is, what can I learn? It's, so what? Okay, God, what are you teaching me? How, do you, how are you speaking new truths into my life that you're trying to, you know, to teach me something new about yourself that I didn't know before? You're teaching me something about my, myself. You're exposing something. You're searching me. You're exposing a wrong action. You're exposing a wrong attitude. Okay, God, what do you want me to change? And so when we study the Bible, again, there's, there's a study, there's a knowledge, but it should always be, okay, God, what is the application? And rule five is, when studying any passage, remember that God has, has written it to one person, which is you. Which is, again, it's, it's, it's really tempting to, I mean, this is, this is like one of the challenges, especially for pastors, um, you know, practically speaking. It's, you know, early on, especially in ministry, 
one of the things that a lot of people in any kind of ministry can you know, fall into is you do your devotional, and your devotional life is basically preparing your next message. And so, you know, so I'm like, okay, well, I'm studying this, and okay, okay what do I need to, you know, what do I need to preach? What do I need to teach? Um, actually, I've got to turn that back around. Instead of saying I'm reading this to study what I can tell other people, even when I'm studying a message, I've got to say, okay, God, again, the first rule of this is that it's what are you saying to me? How are you convicting me? Uh, even as a pastor, I've got to tell you, if God hasn't preached it to me, if he hasn't convicted me, um, it's not going to be very effective in, in, in what I'm telling you. I'm, you know, I can't tell you what God told me to tell you. I can tell you what God told me to tell me. And, and then I'm saying, okay, good, this is what God's teaching me. Here, let me bring you into the whole thing. And, and hopefully as I tell you what he's teaching me, you'll learn something in the process as well. Um, but that's huge devotionally because it's really, you know, it's really on the one hand tempting to study it for intellectual purposes and well, I've learned this theology, I've learned this. Um, and another time it's, it's, in, you know, it's really tempting to, to look at this and I think about, oh, that, you know, who, you know, who, who do I need to send this verse to? Um, you know, who, you know, who's somebody else that, um, that needs to, um, to, to take this and apply it to their lives. And, um, and so it's got to be careful with that. So, okay, so that's a lot of introduction. So now we'll kind of get into kind of some, some basic, you know, some devotional questions, a, a process. Um, and these are, again, you're not gonna necessarily go through this every time, but they're helpful. And they're really, what you're gonna see is they overlap a lot with what we've already said. Okay, so what are some questions to ask and understand the Bible devotionally? Um, number one, who? You know, the first question is, who are the main characters of the passage? Uh, now, if we remember, there's one of the rules of interpreting the Bible that you need to remember here, and, and that is, you know, one of the earlier rules is that, um, is that God is always the main purpose, per person. So it doesn't mean he's the only, but God is always the main character. And so when you look at that, you always, you always look for that. Let me give you some examples. All right, let's take an example of, here we're gonna to start to spend a lot more time in the Bible, uh, Romans chapter 13. Okay, Romans 13 is a very well-known passage that talks about our relationship with, with governments. Now, let me go ahead and read it, Romans 13, starting in verse one. Let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever who resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and, and those who resist will uh, incur judgment. For rulers are not, are not a terror to, conduct, uh, to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear for the one who is an authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear, bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath for, on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay all to all uh, what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now, okay, now we read that and you say, who are the characters? And you know, we'd say, okay, no, this is us and our relationship to the government. And, and it is, and that those are part of it. 
But it's also about God. God's the main character of that passage. Because you look at it and you say, what is the principle here? The principle is that all authority is God's. And so when it talks here about that, that we're subject to governing authorities, it has the idea of, it uses a military term of, of, of subjection, which has the idea of, when you think of it in a military setting, that what you, what you have, and it's, 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 it's very clearly in this idea, that you have a subjection of a, an authority that is delegated. You know, so that if you say, okay, if you're on a base, a military, okay, here you've got the general, and, you know, but if you're, you know, if you're a private, so you're a you know, tenant, it's over. Um, but the thing is, is that you know the sergeant, when he gives you a command, it's because the lieutenant is given a command and, and they're responding to the, you know, the, you know, the, maybe the captain over them and ultimately to the you know, colonel and the general. Um, now you look at that and you say there's a subjection under. And so why am I subjecting to this? Because I'm a subjecting to the ultimate authority. And so if on the other hand, you know, you have somebody that would say, you know, they come in and they're, you know, the sergeant comes in and he's talking about, the colonel told me this, colonel told me, I'm not going to do that, I'm, you know, and they're blatantly disobeying the colonel, then they're going to have no authority because their authority is, is based on their subjection to the authority over them. Now, that's the idea that's being taught here. The idea is that basically you have governing authority has authority because it's from God. So why do I submit to governing authority? I submit to the governing authority because God gave them that authority in a sphere of influence. Now, if the, and that's when you get into the whole passage about, you know, um, you know when Jesus and show me the coin, and I, I mean, we'll come back to that at a different time. But the idea is that if, if a governing authority claims authority where God has not given it to them, you know, basically you look at God has given a governing authority and he's given some to the, to the secular government and they have this realm and he's given some to the church and they have this realm of authority and he's given some to the family and they have this realm of authority. Now what happens is if the government comes and says, I'm going to take authority over the family, what they're doing is that they're going outside of the realm that God has given them. Okay, and so now on that principle, I don't submit there because, because I'm, not, I'm not, you know, that's not submitting to God. Where, and that's what you see with the, with the uh, you know, early disciples when they're saying, well, don't witness. And it says, well, God told us to do that. You know, up at this point, who are we going to obey? You or God? Because they're basically saying, God didn't give you the right to tell us to disobey him on this issue. Um, but ultimately, why do I submit to the governing authorities? I remember even talking to, in particular, you know, I, I can remember really clearly, you know, talking to one of my girls. And they're, you know, they're arguing with me that I'm wrong. And, and I, and I, and I told, told them, I said, you know, I'm not going to even argue. My question isn't whether I'm right or wrong here. The question is, is that God has given me the responsibility to be your dad. And he's given me authority to do that. And he's called me to, to lead. And he's called you to submit to me, not because I'm right, but because I've been given the authority as your dad. And so you submit to me because that's your way of submitting to God. And so I'm not just claiming that authority, I'm teaching her a principle here. Well, and then she says, what if I'm wrong? And, and I said, well, if I'm wrong, see, before God, I have to give answers to, if I'm wrong, then I have to answer to God for being wrong. And one day I'll stand before God and I'll answer to him on how well I, I represented him in the authority that he delegated to me. And you have to give answer to how well you submitted to me as long as you were under my, under my authority. 
And whether I was right or wrong, you don't have to answer to that, I have to. But whether I'm right or wrong, the fact is, is that the principle is you're submitting to me because God gave me that authority. This is how you obey God. And so when you teach those ideas, you see it's radically different, radically changes. And that's, so that's, you know, you read Romans 12 and you think, okay, or Romans 13, and you don't necessarily think that that's about God being the central character, but he is. And if we see him as the central character, it changes the way that we understand the whole idea. Um, one more in that, in, a, in the uh, story of Esther. And if you've ever studied, when, isn't one of the Bible studies doing a story of Esther? One of, yeah. Um, it's a great story, tremendous story. Um, you know, one of the things that's interesting is when you study the story of Esther, they'll, you know, people will say, God isn't mentioned in the story of Esther. And it is, it's the only book in the Bible where God is not mentioned by name. Um, and then you'll have people argue about that. Now, is God not mentioned? In, you know, if you read the story of Esther, it is all about God. Uh, it is all, but, but even the very, and this goes back to the whole idea of the intentionality of the Bible. The fact that God's name isn't mentioned is actually part of the story. Uh, part of the whole thing is that God is working behind the scenes. That's part of the, that's part of the whole lesson of Esther is that God is working in a way that is hidden and that is unseen and that, and that people don't recognize. But it is clearly, who's the main core story, the, the person of the story of Esther? It is all about God. Even though God is not named in person, you know, it is all about God. And then especially when you get into the latter part of, of Esther and you have, I mean, it's so amazing. Uh, I was even talking to somebody about, es about Esther recently and they were saying, you know, I was reading it and it almost sounds like it's too Hollywood, the way it all works out. And, you know, it's just as perfect. And I said, no, the whole idea is, is that Esther prayed and, and it's like, God, you know, let the king you know, raise his arm or staff and let me come before you. And, and he does. And then the king says, whatever you ask up into half my kingdom. And, and it, it, she's got to be sitting there like, if you get an open invitation, this is it. And what does she do? She says, uh, how about if you come to dinner tomorrow night? And I'm like, you know, you passed that by. Now, why is that? Because I think she prayed and God said, okay, go this far and then stop. And even though there was an open door, she's like, I, but God told me to stop here. And she stopped. And the next day he says, half my kingdom. And she stopped. And the fact is that she, she didn't like, she didn't read in, okay, this is what God did. She gave room for God to work. And then God set up this amazing, when you look at all these things about, if you, know, if you don't know the story of Esther, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm losing you a little bit here. You know, but this whole thing where you know, the king is, is, is reading this old um, um, chronicle about things that happened a couple years ago and this guy saved his life and he gave him, you know, I mean, like all the things that happened that only God could do. I mean, it's just like amazing. Um, but it's a great God story. Um, but we just need to see it. So look at all the characters, but then also, um, you know, look to see um, God in the middle of that is always the main character. Also then look for the details. And be open to see things that may be um, maybe a little uncomfortable. And let's take the story of Esther with that again. I don't know if I'm gonna step on toes. I don't know who's taught this yet, and, but I might about to step on toes if you've gotten that far. Okay, okay. Um, I, I maybe, I sh I, maybe I shouldn't get here, but um, this, the most common way to interpret the story of Esther is that 
Esther is a heroine and that you see somebody that from start to finish just obeyed God, sought after God. She just was a wonderful person. Go, um, if that's where you read it, I'm going to encourage you to go back and study it a little bit more. Um, when you really study the book of Esther, I think what you really see in the first part of the book of Esther is that a woman compromised. Think of Esther in contrast to Daniel because they're put side by side in contrast. Of Daniel that said, we're not going to compromise, we're not going to eat the king's food, we're, you know, we're going to hold out. And Esther that's saying, I'll go have sex with the king. You know? I mean, basically, I mean, she became part of the harem. And you see not only Esther, but Mordecai, every, all these people had gone back to Jerusalem. He didn't. They stayed there because it was comfortable. And next thing you know, there's compromise after compromise after compromise. And then suddenly they're caught in this web of compromise. Now, those are some of the details. And look for it and see some of the things that maybe are uncomfortable. Now, that might ruin kind of, you say, does that ruin our idea of, of the story of Esther? No, I, I think it's actually, it's, it changes it incredibly. You know what the story of Esther is? God is able to take people that failed and compromised and people who turn to him and seek after him and he's able to use even fallen people for incredible works of salvation. I mean, that's a whole lot, I like that story a whole lot better. If she was this perfect model, um, you know, most of us couldn't relate to that. If I see her as somebody that was, and, and I think it is the biblical picture of somebody that her early story was that of compromise, and she really had compromised into her culture radically, and then you see God get it, you know, really put her into this crisis, and in that crisis, I think she really repents, and she really seeks after God, and suddenly you see God, God, God using fallen people, which gives me a whole lot of hope. Um, but that's beautiful, but there's details in that. You see, you've gotta read through it. Don't just, you know, and, and read through it and see what's there. It's because it's amazing, you know, I'll, you'll talk to people and they'll talk about taking into the king and, and you know, the king choosing a wife and reading something other than basically this was his harem and, and he chose by choosing a girl that would come and have sex with him one night and the, the woman that performed the best would, you know, get the wife duties. Now that's not necessarily you know, kind of like heroin story, so we kind of clean it up. Uh, and so you look at that and you say, we don't have to clean it up, we don't have, look at the details, deal with it, because even in the details with fallen people, it's an incredible story of God's grace. Um, and so, so pay attention to the details. Uh, let me give you another one. First uh, Samuel, a really common, well-known one, First Samuel 17. And again, you know, we, we did David several years ago, so some of you might be remember, remember this, but when we talked about David, uh, and he fights Goliath, again, there's detail in everything, everything has purpose. So when you read this story, let me go ahead and just even read some of this. Um, uh, let's start in verse four. There came up from the camp of Philistines, a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. And a, six cu a cubit is, is uh, fif basically 15 inches. It's the length from, from your elbow to your, uh, to your fingertips. It's about 15 inches. A span is the nine inches that is from your, uh, you know, on average, nine inches from your, your thumb to your, uh, your pinky. So 15 inches times six uh, plus these nine inches, six, 15 times six is nine feet plus nine inches, nine foot nine. So he's basically walking under a 
um, basketball rim and scraping his head. You know, his, his, his hair is kind of, and this guy's huge. So not only that, but he had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail. The weight of his mail was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had a bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung on his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. His spearhead was 600 shekels of iron and a shield bearer was before him. Now it talks about this and you say, why all this detail? You know, that he's got this, you know, this helmet of bronze on his head, he had a coat of mail. His coat of mail was you know, 5,000 shekels, so it's like 125 pounds of coat of mail. Um, he had this armor of the leg, he has this spearhead, it's like the spear is like a weaver's beam. It's, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's not, it's huge. And, it's, and just the spearhead is 40 pounds. You know, that's like heavier than a shot put. It's, you know, it's, now why all the detail of that? So again, there's a lot of detail, and this is one of the things when you say the detail, a lot of times you're looking at the detail, it's the things, the details that seem too much are there for a reason. And, and I think one of the things that you look at this is that it's, it's again, it's just really easy to read over this. Um, but most of us have seen pictures of really tall people. Um, most of them are really tall, but they're not necessarily, you know, their height is oftentimes because of some kind of other abnormalities. Um, and I, I, you know, for anybody that's a basketball fan, you know, I remember back a number of years ago, they had a guy that was supposed to be like the next player, a guy named Sean Bradley. And, you know, and this guy was, if I remember correctly, I think he was seven foot six or seven foot seven, but he could stand and dunk a basketball flat footed. He was like, you know, way taller than anybody else that had ever played before. And uh, so he was gonna radically change the game because he was, you know, he's like, I think four or five inches taller than the tallest player who had played and had incredibly long arms. And so they're just like, he can just stand under the basket and he can just swat things away. Um, well, and he turned out to be a, a bust because he was you know, seven foot seven, but he was like pencil thin. And so all that would happen is that you'd have people that were a foot shorter than him would just get under and move him out of the way. And, and you know, he just, he couldn't hold his space at all. And that's what made like when you, again, when you have a guy like Shaquille O'Neal or something who was seven foot two, but he was big, he was, and basically what this is saying is that he's not only nine foot nine, but he was a bodybuilder nine foot nine. You know, so that when he's nine, because you can think of, well, he's nine foot nine, and maybe it was just that, yeah, he's a giant, but he was not that coordinated. He had, you know, giant titus or whatever one of those things are, and, uh, you know, he's a beanpole. And, and so, no, and what he's saying is, no, this guy was not only that tall, but he was athletic. He was, I mean, if you're carrying, wearing 125 pounds of mail, if you can throw a spear that the head is 40 pounds, I mean, the fact is, is this guy is, 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 a, is a beast. He's well proportioned. Now, again, there's details there that are really valuable. And, um, and so when their details are there, um, recognize them. All right? I've, I've been talking. I've got to give you a chance to jump in. If, please jump in. If any comments. Did you lose that battle because he was stone? <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> well, I'll tell you, it's interesting. Well, I can't even. It's interesting. There's a book out not long ago where it was somebody was writing all these reasons logically why he wrote this battle and how we, you know, David should have been the. And it, we have all these arguments why. Um, and the fact of the matter is, is that. No, when you have a guy that's, you know, David's 
you know, five foot two and weighs a buck 20, and you have Goliath who's, you know, nine foot nine, probably weighs a thousand pounds, and, you know, just, you know, this, this was not, this was not a fair fight. It was not, you know, David didn't have anything going for him. Uh, uh, have you ever studied the, the ballistics of his sling? Yeah. It, it, that, that stone can actually be like a three, the shot can be equivalent to a 357 Magnum. Yeah. But, in a lot, but it's ultimately, you know, the confidence of God. And that's what, there's so many details in there that you look at it and you see in that story, because that's the details. You look at it and you have Saul and the whole army, they're like, have you seen Goliath? Have you seen Goliath? And David's response is, he's, you know, he's, he's, he's speaking against the armies of God. You know, who is, who is he to challenge God? And so it was interesting, even in the details, you sit there and, and and here you have this guy that is way bigger than they are. Um, and they're looking at it and they're saying, he's way bigger than we are. And, and, when you, and, and it's very clear in David's response, all his words, all the details. David looks at it and says, who's this, you know, who's this, who's this tiny guy to challenge my great God? He's nothing compared to my great God. And that's, and that's what happened. And it was that confidence in God that gave him the confidence to say, well, if God's called me to be the guy to go out there, you know, again, using this morning, if all I've got is five loaves and two fish, you know, I, I can go out there, I can bring my tiny little bit, and God can multiply it if he's called me to do it. And because, you know, you know me plus God is always a majority, is, you know, it's the idea. Um, so, okay, so, you know, pay attention to the details. Uh, let me give you another one, um, or, or don't jump to, you know, when, uh, I'm sorry, I'm going ahead. Um, one more is in, um, Acts chapter 9, 11, and 15. I'm just going to go through these real quickly. Uh, one of the great, great stories that we often miss, and again, this is kind of like a look at the main characters, pay attention to the details, is a story of, of a guy named Barnabas. And I don't know how I've ever studied Barnabas. You know, when we think of, of ministry, in the great ministries of the New Testament, we think of you know, Peter and Paul. We think Paul, Acts is all about Paul. If you study these passages, what you find is that there is no Paul without a Barnabas. And we don't give a whole lot of attention to Barnabas, but the story of Barnabas is incredible. Um, and again, this is seeing, it's really the first two ideas. It's, it's seeing the characters and then paying attention to these details. Um, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. It's the what, here's the what. Um, you know, what are the main points of the teaching? And again, here's where we're gonna see Barnabas. In, you know, when you see the what, but, but, but this is the don't pay attention, or don't pay attention to details, but don't come to conclusions. Because again, so often we can look at the what, okay, what's going on here? What's the main point of the teaching? And, and I think with Barnabas, it's this incredible example that we can jump to this conclusion. It's about Paul, and it's about how God prepared Paul. And when you look at the story, I don't think it is about Paul. I think that there's a tension constantly drawing us away from Paul, or Saul as it was, to Barnabas. Because again, one of the things is, I think very few of us are going to you know, be like Paul. I think many of us can be like a Barnabas. And so when we look at the example, personally, as much as I admire Paul, Barnabas is an example that, I, that, that most of us had. Let's look at this. Uh, we see it first of all in, in Acts 4:36. He's, you know, he's talked about Joseph, son of Levite from Cyprus, who the apostles 
called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. So they changed his name because he was one known for encouragement. Okay, so then we pick him up in Acts 11. This is after, uh, after Saul has, you know, Damascus Road experience. Uh, you know, God has appeared to him. Um, and what has happened now is that everybody's afraid. Let's look at Acts uh, 9.26. When he, when so, this is when he, when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostle, spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. And when he went in and out, and amongst them in Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. So here you have this guy that everyone is afraid that, okay, he's just faking it. And they're afraid, well, if I bring him in, he's going to see who am I, you know, he's, he's out you know, resting and killing Christians. And everyone is afraid, except one guy takes the risk. Story, well, he only knew the story because he spent time with him. So if everyone else is avoiding Saul, Barnabas is the guy that's going to say, you know what? Yeah, this guy is an evil guy that's been killing a bunch of Christians. He's been, but I believe that my God you know, does miracles. And this guy that everyone has been cursing and everybody has been afraid of, and, and we could never think that he could, you know, I believe that God could do this miracle. And so he goes and he spends time with him. He took, it's not only that he took the risk, it's that he had the faith, not the faith in Saul, the faith in God, to be able to take the hated enemy of the church and that God could actually do the miracle of salvation. And then he put his own, these other people, and said, okay, now you're rejecting Saul, I'm gonna put my reputation on the line and basically say, I'm accepting him and, and basically, if you're gonna reject him, you're gonna reject me. And so Saul never gets accepted into the life of the church if it's not for Barnabas. Now what an incredible example. What an incredible example even as we interact with people that ever change and, um, or, you know, the patience and, you know, let's continue on. Okay, let's go to Acts 11. Again, this is the kind of thing that we tend to jump to conclusions and we miss the main point. Um, in Acts 11, you have this report of this church in Antioch that's growing. And so you, the, 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 the leaders in Jerusalem of the primary, um, you know, outside of Israel, basically. And so it's the first major church in a Gentile city. Uh, so that's where we pick it up, verse 11:22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So who's the guy that they send to be the lead pastor? Now here's what, I, now let's pick it up. When he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Paul, or Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were for, for And again, some of the details is who was he? What was his name? Son of encouragement. And again, you know, you know he, Saul had done a little bit of ministry, now he's had this experience where he's growing. And I think that when you put it all together, what the details suggest, it wasn't just that he's sitting there saying, this is really growing, I need an assistant that really needs to be trained that I really believe that God's doing a work and I think that he could be really useful of God. And so if God's called me to be the lead pastor in this ministry, I wanna go find this guy Saul because I think I can disciple him and he can become somebody that really becomes a great leader of Christ. 
that his primary purpose in going and finding Saul was to disciple him. And, and yeah, could, could Saul contribute to the ministry? Yes, but I don't think that was the primary purpose. I think if he was looking for an assistant pastor who'd have gone back to Jerusalem, because he had a whole, lot, a whole lot better candidates down there. He had a whole lot of other people that were a lot more discipled, who were a lot more experienced to do this. Saul was not your top guy that you would choose. Um, but he also knew Jerusalem because this is a Gentile city. So everybody didn't know Saul back in Jerusalem. He couldn't have that leadership role because he was known there. So now he comes and he brings him to this place where he isn't known and he does it primarily for discipleship, for mentoring. Isn't that incredible? All right, now let's go one more, one more passage. Because again, when you, if we think it's all about Saul, we miss it. Or Paul, we miss it. Uh, if, we think it's Saul, if we think it's his story, but when you pay attention to the details, suddenly you see things that you wouldn't see before. Acts 15. Um, this is... Um, after the first missionary journey, they're getting to go for a second one. Uh, in the first missionary journey, there was a guy that they had brought. It was Barnabas and, and Paul and a young guy named John, John Mark. John Mark got homesick early on the trip, went back home. That's the context. Verse 36, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers to every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take, him, uh, uh, take, take with them one who had withdrawn from them in uh, Paphermia and had not gone with them to the work. And there were, arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from, one, from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Now we often read that, and again, we read that and we say, Again, I remember hearing this taught, you know, even in Bible college earlier on. It's like, well, who was right? We're not really sure. And, and it seems like at the end it says Paul was commended to the Lord. It seems like he was right. And Okay, well, let's go back and understand this. And again, you look at it and you say, who was Barnabas? He was son of encouragement. Who went to Paul when Paul was rejected by everyone else. He gave him the example. He trained him up to be the pastor uh, he started the missionary journey, it was Paul and Barnabas because he's training, and why did he take Mark? Because he wanted to train somebody new. Because that's the time John Mark got homesick, he went back home, and uh, so now they go again, and, and Paul's like, well, it's all about the work, it's all about the work, and, and Barnabas is like, no, it's all about discipleship. And, and, and he says, we're gonna bring this guy, and, and, and they have this sharp disagreement. Now, who was right? Here's where you have to go back scripture, interpret scripture. It says, send John Mark and have him bring the scrolls for he's of great help to me. And who is John Mark? He's the guy that wrote the gospel of Mark. He ended up pretty good. Um, Paul himself grew to understand that he should have given him the extra chance. He should be patient with him. He should have been a, learned a little more like Barnabas. And over time, he learned it so that when you look at most of his other ministry, he started out with, yes, Silas, kind of a co-worker, but then most of his other ministry, he's got people like Timothy and Titus, and he's got these young people that he's picking up and he's carrying over, and he's, he's discipling and he's mentoring because he sooner or later figured out, okay, the example that I was given through Barnabas, what he did to me, now I'm going to do with others. 
And so he says in, in first, or 2 Timothy 2, 2, the things that I teach you now entrust to reliable men who will teach others as well. And so if you really want to know Paul, you got to know Barnabas. But it's amazing how we miss those details, isn't it? And how, you know, we can read those stories and we think as we expect it to be all about Paul, that we miss that it's really telling an incredible story about the guy that discipled Paul. Uh, that many, many, many Christians don't know anything about. Um, third question, why? We're really asking here, what are the main motivations behind an action, the concerns behind a teaching? Um, let me give you a good example of that. Um, in Philippians chapter one, uh, in Philippians, if you know the book of Philippians, it's in, really important to know the book of Philippians is written from jail. And, and the whole book of Philippians is really, if you study the passage, um, and you get it, again, these are the details, what you find in the details, is they had sent someone to visit Paul, and you could tell the person that they sent to visit Paul was, you know, like communicated, Paul, we're really worried about you. You know, you're in prison, you've been in prison for, you know, two years getting to Rome, now you've been in prison in Rome for a couple years, You've got to be discouraged. You know, Nero could cut off your head. You know, we don't know what's going to happen. Paul, we're worried, and you've got to be worried. And not only that, but, you know, you're in prison. You might die. You've got, you've got enemies that have, you know, that are basically, you know, uh, ruining your reputation and saying that he's, only in he's in prison. That shows that God isn't behind him, and they're really, you know, attacking your credibility. And, and so that's the, that's the context. Now, when you read Philippians 1 in that context, you find that in Philippians 1, Paul comes back and he says, okay, well, let me answer that concern. He says, okay, you're, you're worried about me because I'm in prison, and, and yes, the gospel's changed. I would rather be out doing missionary journeys, and, and, but you're worried. Well, let me tell you a God perspective. The God perspective is that I've always, but how could I reach Caesar's household? So I'm now imprisoned, and part of the prison, since I'm now a prisoner of Caesar, his private guard, is assigned to me, and there's a, one guy that has to be with me at all times. And, and this guy's chained to me, and, and everything that I do, every, as I'm writing these letters, as I'm praying, as I'm talking to people, they have, I have a captive audience. In reality, they're chained to me, and the gospel is I'm, I'm accomplishing the goal that I always wanted to accomplish. And, and, and you're really concerned about you know, these guys that are trying to attack my reputation, and they're dividing the church because they have bad motives, and well, you know what, they might have bad motives, but the fact of the matter is if the gospel getting out, even through imperfect people who have imperfect motives, praise God that the gospel's getting out. Because what I'm concerned about is the gospel getting out and people coming and go Christ. And it's not whether people follow me or whether people have, because you know, none of us have perfect motives. And the fact is God's able to use imperfect people and if the gospel's being out, I'm praise God. And you're really worried about me because I might be you know, executed, and that's true. You know, Nero can just say I'm guilty and he can cut off my head and it's gone like that. And for me to, to die is Christ, you know, it's gain. I could, you know, if I get my head cut off, then great, I'm going head to heaven, that's all gain for me. So whether I, for me for, to live is Christ and I'm here and I get to serve more, or whether I die is gain, either way I win. And so when you look at this, it's an incredible statement of, of faith. It's, it's, it's one of the, you might have heard, you know, um, is, is I, my, I'm a, I believe in, a, I'm, you know, I used to argue where it was better to be an optimist or a pessimist. And, um, and 
you know, and I'm more optimistic and, and you know, it's, that's better. And when I realize scripturally, it's not actually, I'd say, well, God's an optimist. Well, well no, it's not actually true. When, and, and Philippians is a great example of this. I'm a sovereignist. Because when you look at Philippians, what you see, and it's not only in Philippians, it's in numerous places, it's incredibly realistic about the bad. So the optimist is like, oh, the bad's not gonna happen, it's all gonna be good, I only see, you know, it, you know I, mean, I mean, when it's true of me, I mean, I, one time I made it from my house to the church in 15 minutes, and there was no traffic, and I'm surprised if I make it here, it takes me longer, I expect it to be 15 minutes every time I drive here, you know, which, you know, which it's only happened once in 10 years. Um, but I expect that it will still happen. But you know, that's, I'm a, I'm, I, you know the optimist, optimist expects all green lights, expects, you know, and that's not biblical. Uh, the pessimist sees all the perspective is totally realistic about the problems, totally realistic about persecution, totally realistic about pain, totally realistic about all those things, but then comes back and says, you know what, but God's even sovereign over all those things. So God's been sovereign over my, my imprisonment, God's sovereign, and, and, and so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna look for that. And so it, it, it lives with a total realistic uh, understanding of the brokenness and pain of real life. At the same time, in the midst of that, always seeing the redemption to that pain, to the opposition, to the persecution, which is incredible. And, um, and so, so, but you don't see that. You can see some of it, but you don't see all of it if you don't know the why. You can study Philippians out on some of those things. Um, um, I'll give you one other one real quickly. Um, in Acts 16, uh, it talks about when Paul takes Timothy, and it talks about that, um, at Acts 16, he says, uh, um, he was a son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well-spoken by the brothers. Uh, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, but he took him and circumcised him because the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And you look at that and you say, why did he circumcise him? You know, right beforehand in Acts 15, they said, you don't need to circumcise Gentiles that come to Christ. So why did he circumcise him? Well, okay, so you say, what is the motivation? Um, scripture interprets scripture. You go back to, to the Jew, I became the Jew, to the Greek, I became the Greek. And basically it's saying here, why did he circumcise? Now, it wasn't religious, it wasn't anything spiritual, but it was basically saying, okay, Timothy, if you're gonna minister amongst Jews and you're Jewish, if you're not circumcised, they're not gonna pay attention to you. And so if, if we go ahead and do this, it gives you the, you know, it, it opens up the door for ministry. So you see the motive of it. If you don't know the motive, you know, then you could sit there and say, well, that doesn't seem right. And, but you've gotta know the motive to understand you know, the, the why under, helps us understand the whole thing. Um, next question, how? What are the major factors that brought about significant results and consequences? Um, we're gonna come back to this idea in, in historical narrative. You especially see this in majorly in historical narrative. This is like one of the really foundational rules of historical narrative. It teaches us through consequences. Um, you know, but when you look at for example, the, um, I remember years ago talking to Mormons and they were telling me about you know, multiple marriages and they said, well, look at Abraham. And uh, you know, so God was okay with it then. And, and, and okay, well, was he okay with it? And what you have to look at is you have to say, okay, what were the consequences? What are the, what are the uh, factors that brought about results and consequences? Every time you have anyone in the Bible that has multiple wives, 
their story is always a tragedy. Very, very clear, and we're going to see this again when we come to historical narrative. The Bible is unquestionably clear that multiple wives was always wrong, but it teaches it through consequences. And, and people did it. Yeah, did people, you know, God-fearing people that, you know, that God used in other ways, they did, yes. Um, but there were always consequences, and they were never good in historical narrative. And last one with this one is what are the parts of the passages that seem obscure out of place? Um, and, um, and, and again, that's one of the rules that, you know, of teaching the Bible that we've talked about, uh, or understanding the Bible. And, and again, all I have to do with that is to go back to this morning. Um, because when you look at this morning, and, and if, you were, you know, if you weren't with us, we're in uh, John chapter six, and we brought out John chapter six, you have verses three and four, both don't belong. You know, you read John chapter six, and it says, okay, there's all these people following Jesus, and then he sat down to teach people, and, and which doesn't belong, because next thing you know, he's getting up to see all these people that are coming to him. And then, and then in verse four, it talks about this, you know, feast of the Passover was handed, which doesn't belong at all. It, there's nothing in the, in, in the whole story that, that refers in any way to the Passover. So again, it, it doesn't seem to belong at all, except when you look later on, and we see him you know, um, you know, and, and I'll actually give him, I didn't mention this this morning, because it was, again, it was the, the whole thing when you say the perspicuous scripture and the Greek and things like that. Um, I'll mention one thing that I didn't mention, mention this morning, that when in verse 11, when it talks about that Jesus took the bread and blessed it and distributed it, the word that he says for blessed is the word um, from which we get for blessed, for blessing. And, and it's the word that he uses in the Lord's Supper that he blessed it with in that, in that noun or that, that verb. Um, and it's the same verb that he used there from which we get Eucharist. Now again, even the very language there, it's making it really, really explicit. Here's this thing that doesn't belong. There's nothing that, you know, no reason to mention that it just so happened to be the Passover season, except if it was a hint, it was that highlight and then we see it come back in verse 11 when he says he, you know, blessed, he eucharisted it, and he distribu- broke it and distributed it. It's clearly a reference to the Lord's Supper, which is, as we looked at some t- today, it's kind of saying, okay, now how, why do we believe? How can we have faith going forward? When God gives us overwhelming circumstances, uh, how do we have faith? If faith is, the, is, is based on, on truth, you know, what is, the, what is the, the facts we pick up and throw out there that give us an outline for confidence going forward for what we don't see? I look back to what I can see. I see how God has shown his love and grace for me. I see his sacrifice and what he did is we reminded of the Eucharist at the Lord's Supper, at, at the cross, and if he's done that for me then, that gives me every reason to have confidence that he's gonna love me, care for me, take care for me, that he's gonna trustworthy. I, I, can I see it? No but I have, I have every reason to have confidence because it's consistent with logic and reason and experience. Um, and so again, it, that's all over the Bible. It's all over John, specifically. It's, it's like, I'm amazed at every, every, every passage, it seems like there's a, another piece in John where it's just this, this thing that seems to not belong or you know, Jesus so often. I mean, I was joking with somebody even the other day of just you know, early on, it, 
you know, Jesus, the first four chapters, it's like every time he's asked a question, he gives a, a really inappropriate response, you know, that just has nothing to do with the question. And every time it's drawing our attention to that. Um, and, but that's devotionally notice those things uh, because they're driving us to the point that God's trying to make. So, so that's, we're gonna break there. So we'll pick up next time at um, these questions about, uh, and again, we're gonna do a lot of scripture next time, you know, questions starting with uh, applying the Bible, questions that we ask in application. Um, any closing comments or questions? We've got like just four minutes. That's a great question. I'm gonna come back to this some next week as well, but I'll go ahead and answer it somewhat. It's the question is, do we, I recommend like devotional books or just the reading of the Bible. There are, there's value in devotional books, especially if they're biblically based, but I wouldn't, I would discourage making it a regular diet. I'd, I'd, you know, I'd say that can be part of our diet, and here's the main reason why. And, and I, I remember a season of life that I became guilty of this. I was reading a lot of devotional books, and some of them really wonderful, you know, really great devotional books. But what I realized is that what I was doing is that I was learning what God had taught someone else. And, 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 it, and, and, it, and over time, it, at first it was really good because I'm, I'm learning what God taught them, and that was wonderful, but I wasn't letting God speak to me. You know, it was, it was, you know, God taught C.S. Lewis or, you know, John Piper or whoever it would be or, you know, uh, and, and again, again, great truths, um, but they're indirect truths. And so that could be good for a season, but I think it's really, really important to also have seasons where I say, I just want to interact with God's word. Um, because when I interact with God's word and I go to the Holy Spirit and I say, okay, God, I wanna look at this passage and not see what you taught someone else about this passage, but what can you teach me? Um, I think especially when we're younger, there, you know, there, there can be value in doing that periodically. Um, and again, especially if somebody rightly handles the word of truth, because again, I, as I shared some, even in the way that I preach, I'm always trying to not only say, well, here's what I learned, but I'm always trying to show you how I learned it. And so if you have a good devotional book that not only teaches you, okay, here's, here's a point, and the, you know, some are like, here's a point, and they just have a Bible verse as a reference. I would not be as high on those. If you have one that kind of breaks down a passage and you say, oh, I see that, I saw, I got that. The value of that, it could be not only what you learn, but they're showing you how to become a better student. But again, I'd always encourage you to at least spend some time, um, you know, you know it, when I say seasons, it's not like every day, but it might be, Okay, I'm gonna read this book for these, you know, for these weeks, and then I'm gonna go and I'm gonna spend this time in this part of the God's word. But to always spend some time on your own so that you let God's spirit speak directly to you. So that's a great point, great question though. Thank you. So. You said in the first class where <clears throat> your goal is to get us to be able to feed ourselves from mm-hmm. the Bible. That would be an unrealistic goal with a brand new Christian who doesn't know hardly anything about the Bible. So those kind of things, devotionals, and that right. can help them. But if they, if they want to do a steady diet of that all their life, 
the deeper things of the Bible they're not going to get because those God wants you to discover from Him. Right, and especially you have a new believer, they'll read, you know, read the Bible and they're like, oh, I don't, you know, and especially, you know, I know, I know some believers, new believers, they're like, I want to read the whole Bible. So you start in Genesis and it's good, and then you go to Exodus, and then you get to Leviticus, and it's like, oh, you know, just like, you know, just ground. And, Maybe that's why God put it like that. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, but there are points, there's real value of some devotional book, especially, again, that helps us to get that. But the goal of, is all of us to eventually say, you know, I, I want to I rightly handle God's word. And, and not only learn what God's telling me through someone, what he told someone else, but when we rightly handle the word of truth, we're, we're saying, okay, God, I, wanna, I, wanna, I want you to speak to me directly. Um, you know, what are the truths that you want to speak to me? And I, and I will tell you that it's... Um, you can, the, the neat thing is, I, I, I know myself, I could take any passage that I've done and go back and study. In fact, I do, if there's, any, if there's a passage, like I've never preached on John before, so it's the first time, but there's some, I might do a passage, or a book that I'd preached on before. And I'll look at the old notes, and I seldom use very much of them at all, because I study it, and God's teaching me something new. And, yeah. It's, it's not only that I'm maybe growing deeper, but I'm in a different place and I'm ministering to a different community. And so the, the, the principles that God may draw out to me are new and different. And the fact is, is that, um, and that's the value of studying on our own, is that I, you know, I want to say, God, what do you want to say to me in this season of life? And, um, and, and again, the unique things that he's going to say to me. That's, that's one of the things I know I'm, I'm not real, I, I know one of the things that's become popular is that you have some churches that are video churches and you have a pastor and they've got video. There's a num number of reasons, biblically and otherwise, that I, I, I'm not real comfortable with that, but one of the things is I'm not just, you know, even as a pastor, I'm not just preaching, here's what I've learned. It's I know this community, I know this people, and, and the way that I would preach the message is going to be different here than it would be in Fort Lauderdale when I was down in Fort Lauderdale because our, our congregations are so different. And, and so it's, you know, and so it's always should be applied towards, towards us. It should be personalized. Um, one last question. Uh, it wasn't a question. I just wanted to weigh in on the idea of devotionals being more applicable to new believers. That's to discount that the Holy Spirit doesn't always do the teaching. Yeah. Even from the Yeah. And anything else is if you've got a lot of time to invest, then devotionals and other things are good. But your primary diet should always be the word. Yeah, and that's, and, that's, and that's why I'd say no matter where you're at, it should always be, it could be part of the diet, but it should never be the whole. And, and ideally, even the ones that do, it should be ones that are heavily, not kind of devotional thought that has a Bible verse reference, but that it should be a devotional that really even is teaching the Bible. And there are some that are better at that, that they're not, you know, that they're really explaining, here's this verse, here's the context. And, um, and I agree with that. So, well, let me close up in prayer. Father, I thank you so much for the time that we could spend. I thank you for the opportunity that we have to, to and Father, I pray now your blessing on, on our time, Father, and our study. Father, as we seek to, again, become uh, men and women who are, are workmen that need not to be ashamed, who rightly handle the word of truth, Father, people who dive into your word, into your revelation, 
Uh, Father, recognizing that we're not just trying to learn theology or truth about you, but Father, we want to know the word of God so that we would get in that way. Father, that we would be people who would know your heart, know your character, and, and, in, and as a result, that we would become increasingly like Christ. Father, we thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.